And God hates death because with death comes withering and barrenness and separation. And listen to me today. If you have spiritual life, if you've been born again and you have Christ in you and you have spiritual life, then never live in spiritual death. Would you take your Bible, please, this morning and open up to the Gospel of Mark, chapter number 12. Mark, chapter number 12. Back in Jesus' day, the, the Jewish people sort of elected, formed somehow two main groups of leaders. One was known as the Pharisees. They, these were more the blue-collar workers. The other were known as the Sadducees. They were more the uppity crust kind of uh, people. And these were the two main groups of Judaism back in Jesus' day. And they had a little difference in doctrine as well. And the Pharisees uh, did not believe uh, in the resurrection. You see in verse 18, then come to him. Did I say Pharisees? I meant Sadducees. I'm sorry, that happens, you know. Yeah. Uh, <clears throat> I wonder if Jesus ever did that, calling the Sadducees the Pharisees. I doubt it. So the Sadducees here in verse 18, which say there is no resurrection. The idea is life after death. And so they came to him with this crazy question. The Pharisees and Sadducees were always playing these crazy games with each other. And they figured they had these hard questions you couldn't answer. And so they tried these on Jesus. And of course, he just slapped them silly. He, he answered them and they were dumbfounded. So they came up with this uh, question here. And they said, uh, a man's brother dies and leaves no children. And so uh, his brother is to marry the wife and raise up of children. This was according to what Moses had taught back in Deuteronomy chapter 25. And so they say, well now, verse 20, there were seven brothers. And the first took a wife and the first guy died. The second one took her and he died. The third guy took, him, took her and he died. And the fourth guy, you'd start thinking maybe the fifth guy wouldn't take this woman as a wife because if all his brothers died, everyone that marries or dies, you know, I, I don't want to do that. But apparently... Uh, they all seven, they all took her and they all died and they left no children. Now their question was, of course the woman died also in verse 23, in the resurrection therefore, when, when they shall rise, of course they didn't even believe that themselves, right? But this was their question, whose wife shall she be of them for the seven had her to wife? And they figured we got him, we've nailed him to the wall. He won't be able to answer this. This is one of our best tough questions that, that no one can answer. And then Jesus told them, he says, um, Do ye not therefore err, because ye know not the Scriptures, neither the power of God. Two things they didn't know. And there's a lot of people running around that claim to be Christian and claim to be religious. They don't know the Scriptures. They don't know God. And yet they've got their religious philosophies and ideas. And so Jesus plainly told them, verse 25, when they shall rise from the dead, they, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are as the angels which are in heaven. Some of us have trouble wrapping our mind around how we can be happy and not be married. Some people, of course, wish that they weren't married and then they think they would be happy. We, we live very crazy lives. We're all mixed up, it seems. 
So verse 26, as touching the dead that, that they rise, now Jesus is going to nail them with their mistaken doctrine. And trust me, it's not hard to have a mistaken doctrine. And now here Jesus points out something to them and he quotes Moses and, and God. This is the story when God called Moses out of the burning bush. I think we're all familiar with that story. And in verse 26, God says to Moses, I, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now look at it again. And I'm going to put an emphasis. Watch. I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Verse 27, Jesus says, He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. What Jesus was telling them, and he dumbfounded them, is that these guys were still alive. Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. God said to Moses, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And what God was saying is that he is still currently present tense, still is the God of Abraham. Why? Because Abraham's still alive. He still is currently the God of Isaac. Why? Because Isaac is still alive. He currently still is the God of Jacob. Why? Because Jacob is still alive. All three men were still alive in Moses' day, and they're still alive today. Jesus said, God is not the God of the dead, but of the living. Notice that Jesus interpreted the Scripture literally. That is a mistake that some people make. That's why they come up with some weirdo doctrines. They're not taking the Word of God literally. Those Sadducees walked away scratching their heads saying, we never thought of that. Bottom line in verse 27, He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. God designed life. He designed the Christian life to be full of life. And to be full of growth and full of fruitfulness. If you'll remember reading in Genesis, the very first thing that God told to, to Adam and to Eve is, be fruitful and multiply. God is into this kind of thing. A barren Christian, a fruitless Christian, a useless Christian is an anomaly. It ought not to be. It's crazy. It's something literally crazy. It's not meant to be that way. I'll tell you something crazy. is a crazy poem I once read. It makes absolutely no sense at all. Listen to it. I'll, I'll read it to you. Ladies and gentlemen, skinny and stout, I'll tell you a tale I know nothing about. The admission is free, so pay at the door. Pull up a chair and sit on the floor. One bright day in the middle of the night, two dead boys got up to fight. Back to back, they faced each other, drew their swords and shot each other. A deaf policeman heard the noise and came to stop those two dead boys. If you don't believe this lie is true, just ask the blind man. He saw it too. Now that is a crazy poem. And it makes no sense at all. And neither is a Christian with no fruit, with a barren life, no usefulness for God. It makes no sense. It's not designed to be that way. Now, I'd like to think that most all of us, we value our physical lives. We might think that it's one of our greatest possessions. Many a rich man on his deathbed would gladly give all his wealth if only he could live for one more year 
or even one more month, possibly one more day, he'd give it all because of how much he values physical life. But what good would physical life be if all you could ever do is just lay in a bed and do nothing? Day after day after day until you finally died. Would you like a life like that? Because there are people in the world that have to live like that. I met a man in that condition once. He was being looked after by his uh, daughter and son-in-law. And they were middle-aged at the time. And I went to their home and I got to meet him. And he opened his eyes. And he would look. But he wasn't able to speak. He wasn't able to move. He was sort of in a vegetative state. And he'd been that way for a few years. And he continued that way for a couple more years until he finally died. Who would, who would want to live like that? You'd say, ah, bring on death. Let's get it over with. But otherwise, physical life can be a, a good thing. We have many wonderful things in life that can be a blessing to us and warm our hearts. It's great to be able to get out of bed in the morning and face, face a new day and, and, and go through a day. It's what makes life life. Spiritual life is more important than physical life. But what kind of spiritual life could we, could we have or would we want if we just did nothing? If there was no growth? If there was no blessings? If there was no fruitfulness? What kind of spiritual life is that? Huh? I guess we may as well not even have it. Or so it seems. God is the God of life and growth and fruitfulness. Back in 1882, a German philosopher known as Friedrich Nietzsche published the statement, God is dead. And what he meant by that was that God only exists in the minds of those who follow him, therefore he's dead. Personally, I think that's a crazy thing to say, but many unsaved people hail Friedrich Nietzsche as a hero for saying what he said. But is God really dead? Is he? In order to be dead, I think you first need to be alive. Right? It's sort of an opposite, isn't it? Uh, otherwise, if someone never even existed, how can they be dead if they never even lived? 2,000 years ago, they crucified God. His name was Jesus Christ, the God-man. They crucified him on a cross. They nailed him. They rove a spear in his side. They put him in a tomb. They stood back and they said, He's dead. But he rose from the dead on the third day because he is a living God. Amen. Today we're going to learn something amazing about God as we consider this subject, life, growth, and fruitfulness. Pray with me first. Heavenly Father, please open the eyes of our understanding. Unstop our ears so that we can receive what you have for us. We pray that you would encourage us and help us to be able to bring forth fruit. Good things for you, for your glory, Lord. Bless us today in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, again, I'd like to say that God is the author of life. He is the sustainer of life. And listen, if God could ever die, then we'd all be out of business, all of us. Because He is the one who keeps us alive. Our heart is beating because of Him. Thirty times in the Bible, 
it refers to God as the living God. Why does it say that? Why does it add the adjective living? Why not just say God? Why does the Bible say he's the living God? It's because all other so-called gods do not exist. They never have, they never will. He is the one, the only God that has ever existed and is still living today. All other gods are false gods. People will make statues to them. On these statues, they'll give them eyes, they'll give them ears, they'll give them mouths. But these things do not exist. They're false gods. They have eyes, but they cannot see. They have mouths, but they cannot speak. They have ears, but they cannot hear. The God of the Bible is not only a living God. He is the God of all life. In Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. God is the author and finisher of life, meaning this. No one comes into this world and no one goes out of this world without God's knowledge and without his say-so. There are over 8 billion people in the world today. No one knows them all. No one except God. He knows when a little baby is born in the darkest, remotest part of this world. He knows. He knows also when a little baby dies in the womb. He knows because life goes back to the giver of life, God. He is the author and sustainer and the finisher of life. Now, in Mark chapter 12, verse 27, Jesus said, He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were still alive, life after death. God is not the God of the dead. He is the God of the living. Now look again at the end of verse 27. Jesus continued on and he said, Ye, that meaning the Sadducees, Ye therefore do greatly err. Not only did they err, they greatly erred. To err means to make a mistake. This is a tremendous mistake they made. Why did Jesus say that they greatly erred? Because life is what God is all about, especially eternal life after physical death. And these people, these Sadducees, they erred in at least two major ways. Number one, by denying life after death, which is what they were doing. They prevented themselves from being saved so that they could go to heaven. If someone doesn't believe in life after death, there's no reason why they would ever want to receive Jesus as their Savior. If people have the philosophy of, well, they don't live, drink, be merry, tomorrow we die, and we die like dogs, and that's the end of it, you know, we cease to exist. If that's what they believe, they're not going to want a Savior. Savior from what? These people here, the Sadducees, they shot themselves in the foot by denying life after death. Number two, the second way they greatly erred is they insulted God. You don't do that. They greatly erred by insulting God, denying His ability to give life after death. Now, physical death is something we're all familiar with. The reason we have it in the world is because of the curse that came upon all the world because of our sin. Genesis chapter 2, verse 17, God said, For in the day that thou eatest thereof, thou shalt surely die. 
Ezekiel 18, God said, The soul that sinneth, it shall die. Romans 6.23, The wages of sin is death. James 1.15, Sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Every human being alive is under this curse because Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Every one of us here today, everyone in the world today, everyone that has ever lived has sinned and come short of the glory of God. It goes right back to our very first parents. The two people that God made in the beginning and we are their offspring. And we have inherited this sin nature. Woe be to us. But God is not a big fan of death. God is a big fan of life. Jesus said in John chapter 5, And ye will not come to me that ye might have life. Jesus was saying, why don't you come to me? I can give you life, but you don't want that. You won't come to me. In John 10, Jesus said, I am come that they might have life. And that they might have it more abundantly. Imagine that. You and I can not only have life, but abundant life. Jesus will give us. And in John chapter 20, John who wrote the Gospel of John said, but these are written that ye might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing ye might have life through His name. Indeed, our Lord Jesus in Mark chapter 12 verse 27 said that God is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. God is very pro-life. Romans 6.23, the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. D.L. Moody was one of the world's greatest evangelists of the 1800s. He died in 1899. A few years before he died, he wrote these words and published them in a newspaper. Someday you will read in the papers that D.L. Moody of East Northfield is dead. Don't you believe a word of it. At that moment I shall be more alive than I am now. I shall have gone up higher, that is all, out of this old clay tenement, referring to his body, into a house that is immortal, a body that death cannot touch, that sin cannot taint, a body fashioned like unto his glorious body. He had the right perspective. But with God, this idea of life and death goes even further than that. Did you know that God hates death? Did you know that? In Ezekiel 33, Say unto them, As I live, saith the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. A lot of wicked people in the world, I'm, I'm sure you'll agree. If you watch the headline news, you'll know there's a lot of horrible things going on. People doing, oh, atrocities, wickedness. And we just know the tip of the iceberg. And these people all come and they die and they end up in hell. And God says in Ezekiel 33, He says, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. God is not a big fan of death. In fact, in the Old Testament book of Numbers chapter 9, God actually separates Himself from death. And He commanded the Jews to separate themselves from death. For example, if they had to touch a dead body to bury it, say, they were considered unclean until the even time, or in some cases, 
for seven days they were considered unclean before God. If they refused to separate themselves, then they were cut off from the nation Israel. God was very adamant about this, very serious. Death is a serious thing. In Numbers chapter 6, we learn about what something called the Nazarite vow. It was a very special vow, a serious vow that believers made between themselves and God. And it gave them sacred closeness with God, the Nazarite vow. But listen, it says, All the days that he separateth himself unto the Lord, he shall come at no dead body. And so you can easily see that what God is saying is there needs to be a separation. God even told his people not to make contact with dead, departed souls. That kind of thing is going on today, you know. They call it seances, where they get together around a table maybe and hold hands and possibly a crystal ball in the center and they're trying to make contact with someone who's died. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, a person who held a seance and tried to contact the dead was considered an abomination to God. It's not some uh, little cheap parlor trick. It is something abominable in the eyes of God. Don't ever have anything to do with seances and these uh, people who claim that they can uh, uh, contact the dead. The term used is a necromancer. A necromancer. Necromancy has to do with the death. Death and dying and dead. And a necromancer is someone who claims to be able to reach through the curtain of death and grab hold of someone. Old Aunt Matilda. Let's have a talk with old Aunt Matilda. You know, and there's people that go for this kind of thing. And I think it's a mixture today of con artists and Satanism. My opinion only. But God is telling us not to have anything to do with that. Therefore, to associate the living God with death is to greatly err. However, I do want to point out this, that even good people die. Even godly, wonderful people, God's children come to a point of death, don't they? And God has tender compassion for when His children die. In Psalm 116, it says, Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of His saints. This doesn't mean that God likes their death, but He loves the fact that now they're coming to Him. They're going to be with Him. And that's what He likes. God is very pro-life. And life is the opposite of death. God hates death, but God loves life. In fact, He loves life so much that He's made us a promise that there is coming a day when He will, he will prove His contempt for death by allowing his people his children to bypass death not everyone is going to die a physical death not everyone is there is coming a, a an event on the the prophetic calendar as we call it an event called the rapture which means a, a catching away a catching away of all believers i'd like you to turn to the right in the new testament to the book of first corinthians chapter 15 and i want you to see it here for yourself 1 Corinthians chapter number 15. We refer to this as the rapture, a catching away of God's children. It hasn't happened yet, but it is going to happen. When is it going to happen, you say? We don't know. We are never told when. We are always told just to be ready. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter number 15 and I'd like to read a few verses starting at verse 50. Oh, yeah, let's go. Let's do verse 50, yeah. Now this I say, brethren, 
that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, neither doth corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I show you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Now pause for a moment. This thing about the rapture, the catching away, was something that the Christians weren't aware of to this point. Jesus never spoke of it. This rapture was something that Jesus revealed to Paul. That's why Paul wrote about it in chapter 15. He says, Behold, I show you a mystery. The word mystery means something that is concealed. Let me see if I can illustrate that with anything back here. Ah, I've got something. I'm holding something in my hands. It's a mystery, isn't it, what I may be holding? I know what it is, but you don't know what it is. Right now it's a mystery. But I will reveal the mystery. Behold, I show you a mystery. Box Kleenex. Now you didn't know I was holding that. That was down here. You couldn't see it. God was holding a truth. Concealed, hidden from his people. Paul said, I show you a mystery. Here it is. We shall not all sleep. That's the idea of dying physically. But we shall all be changed in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump. So there's some kind of trumpet going to sound. Hasn't happened yet. For the trumpet shall sound and the dead shall be raised incorruptible. The dead, he's talking about in context, are the ones that have slept. The Christians, the believers, the born again ones. And there's lots of them. And they're in the graves. Some of them are cremated, their ashes are somewhere. The physical matter is changed, you know, from maybe one form to another. It's out there, though, somewhere. And God is going to, at some point, raise them all. They shall be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed, for this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. That's the promise. The promise. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption and this mortal shall have put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. That's a quote out of the book of Isaiah, the Old Testament book of Isaiah. O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? There's coming a day, and it may be very soon, when every believer in Jesus Christ Every blood-bought, born-again believer in Jesus Christ will suddenly vanish. He will catch us away. This is also spoken of and taught about in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We don't have time to go there. You can look it up on your own. But these two chapters, 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, detail very carefully what the Lord is going to do. And it is going to happen. All right? So verse 20. Uh, sorry, 55, O death, where is thy sting? O grave, where is thy victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, which giveth us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. That's how we get this victory. It's through Jesus. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. There's that fruitfulness we're talking about. For as much as ye you know your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Wow, it's coming. It could be today, it could be tomorrow, it could be next month. We don't know when it's going to happen. But we need to live our lives as if it could happen very soon. Jesus is coming.
Why does God love life so much? God loves life because with life comes growth and fruit and abundance. And God hates death because with death comes withering and barrenness and separation. And listen to me today. If you have spiritual life, if you've been born again and you have Christ in you and you have spiritual life, then never live in spiritual death. Don't live your life as if you don't have spiritual life. Don't live that way. Live as if you have what you really have. Live as if you are what you really are, a child of the King. The trumpet could sound and He could call you home any day. Wow. And when you and I disappear, this world is going to say, what just happened? Where did they go? My wife and I watched a little documentary on Malaysian flight MH370 nine years ago this month. That's when it just vanished off the radar. They still haven't found it. I think there are three pieces, three tiny portions of the plane that have been found on the western you know, shores of the uh, uh, Indian Ocean there. But three pieces. They haven't found anything else. You know, they're not even going to find that much when the rapture happens. We're gone, folks. Jesus is literally going to come and take us. Now, some people will call that a pipe dream. They'll say, oh, that's just a fable. Yeah, yeah, that's what they said back in Noah's day when Noah told them it's going to rain one day. It had never rained. Water had never come from the sky down. It had always come from the ground up. That's how things got watered. And Noah was telling them something that had never happened. They said, Noah, you're crazy. It'll never happen. But one day it happened. And we're, we're trying to tell people, Jesus is coming. Ah, you're crazy. One day he's going to come. It will happen. Are you ready? Are you ready? Our church, Grace Baptist Church, must be what God wants it to be. Otherwise, what are we in business for? We belong to Him, so we need to be what He wants us to be. We must bring Him pleasure. Therefore, our church must be filled with life and growth and fruit and abundance. God calls upon every Christian man, woman, and young person to live a life of growth and fruitfulness. I'll show you this if you turn back to the Gospel of John. Turn to the left. The Gospel of John, chapter 15. I'll show you this. The Lord Jesus tells us this very clearly. Gospel of John, chapter 15. Follow along in verse 1. Jesus said, I am the true vine, and my father is the husbandman. The husbandman is like the, the gardener, the, the vine dresser. Verse 2, every branch in me, because he's the vine, and from the vine come the branches. If you're in Christ, you're a branch. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. So you have the vine, and you have the branches in the vine. Saved people are the branches. Unsaved people are not stuck into this vine. There are no unsaved people organically connected to the Savior Jesus Christ. 
If you're here and you're saved, you're born again, you are, you are a branch connected to the vine. Now the question is, what kind of branch are you? Are you bringing forth fruit? Are you bringing forth no fruit? One of the two. Jesus said, if, if a branch is not bearing fruit, he taketh it away. So what does that mean? Well, I think it means just that. A Christian who's barren and useless and fruitless, God says, well, I can't do anything more with you. Your time's up. He takes them home to heaven. A vine dresser does the same thing. He'll take his pruning shears and he'll start going throughout the, the vine there and he'll say, okay, this one's dead. Clip, takes it away. This one's dead. Clip, takes it away. This one is bearing fruit. And so he starts to prune it so that it is able to bring forth more fruit. That's what Jesus is saying. Remember, Jesus interpreted the Bible literally to the Sadducees. He showed us how to interpret the Bible. And that's what we're doing here. It's a great analogy. And so he purgeth it that it may bring forth more fruit. Now, verse 3, Now ye are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. In other words, they got saved. Abide in me and I in you. By the way, that's a daily thing. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself, except it abide in the vine. You see where we get our fruit from? It's by abiding in Jesus. Walk with Jesus. Talk with Jesus. Live with Jesus. Read the Word every day. Pray every day. Walk with Jesus. And then he says, No more can ye except ye abide in me. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him, the same bringeth forth much fruit. If you want to be a fruitful Christian, you need to abide in Jesus day by day, moment by moment. That's where the fruit comes from. For without me, ye can do nothing. Now he says, if a man abide not in me, here's the other branches that are not abiding in him. They're abiding somewhere else, maybe a, a wild vine or something like that. He is cast forth as a branch and is withered and men gather them and burn them into the fire and they are burned. That's kind of a description of hell. And you do have people who claim to be born again, who claim to be Christian, but they're not. They just are living for themselves, the world, the flesh, the devil, but they're not born again. They've never repented of their sin. They've never received Christ. They're a branch, but not of the vine. They're gathered up and they're burned. There is a heaven above, there is a hell below. Either men are saved on their way to heaven or they're lost and on their way to hell. That's just the bottom line of it, folks. I didn't make that up. That's what God teaches us here. By the way, did you know Jesus spoke more about hell than he ever did about heaven? That's an interesting thought. And so here, Jesus himself is talking about being in the vine. That's being saved. Did you know you can be in the vine and yet still produce no fruit? You can be barren. That's sad. There's probably nothing worse for a church or a Christian than to be barren and fruitless. In Revelation chapter 3, the church in Laodicea boasted that it had all of this wealth, but in God's eyes, it was broke. It was poor. It was destitute. It was naked. It was barren and it was fruitless. 
Read Revelation chapter 3 and find out for yourself. It wasn't a very good church to attend. What a joke the devil has when he is able to make us fruitless and useless and barren. But what a victory when by faith we obey God, we abide in Jesus, and he makes us fruitful and useful and full of life. Now I want you to turn to one last passage of Scripture and we're finished today, but it's almost to the end of the New Testament to the right in the book of 2 Peter. If you would turn there quickly, please. 2 Peter to chapter 1. 2 Peter chapter 1. Now, let's read together. Verses 5, 6, 7, and 8. Four verses. First, Second Peter chapter 1, verses 5, 6, 7, and 8. And these are words of instruction to those of us who are saved. We are in the vine. Okay, let's begin. And beside this, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, and to virtue knowledge, and to knowledge temperance, and to temperance patience and to patience godliness, and to godliness brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness charity. For if these things be in you and abound, they make you that ye shall neither be barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's God's will for your life and for my life, to abide in Jesus, let His power flow through us so that we can produce fruit. Our part here is to be busy adding one to another these things mentioned because if they're in us and we let them abound, we'll never be barren. We'll never be unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ and as we live for Him. Now we need to close up the message today. One week's time from now is Sacrifice Sunday and it's a time for faith. It's a time for fruitfulness. It's not a time for barrenness. I encourage you, determine in your heart today that you'll be part of this with us as a church family, that you'll take part in Sacrifice Sunday, even if you have to split it up over a few weeks or something like that. Remember that Sacrifice Sunday will upgrade our church for the glory of God. Everything that you see around you today came as a result of previous Sacrifice Sundays. People who gave I ask you this question. Is your Christian life filled with growth and fruit and spiritual abundance? Is it? It's springtime outside the four walls of this building. Spring is coming. I looked at my tree in my front yard. You know, we had an ice storm a few months ago and we had a bunch of broken branches on our tree. It's a sad day. We had to cut these things up and haul them away. But a couple of them we couldn't reach, so we left them there. And one of them that has this big <laughs> break in it, you know, it's hanging down. I went out and I looked at it. It's starting to bud. I couldn't believe it. It wants to bring forth fruit. This broken branch is starting to bud. Have you ever felt like a broken branch in the vine of Jesus? Sometimes, maybe. 
God can still make you bring forth fruit. He can still cause you to bud and bring forth fruit. That's His will and He will do it if you join hands with Him. I want to encourage you to do that today. I want to encourage you to reach out to God in prayer and pray, God, make, make my life fruitful. Help me to bring forth fruit for your honor and for your glory. I think that's so important for every single Christian. Possibly you're here today and you've never been born again. You have no spiritual life. You're abiding under the shadow of death. Well, I have good news for you, my friend. Jesus said in John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Now listen carefully. Did Jesus say these words, Whosoever believeth in Him and takes communion shall have everlasting life. Is that what Jesus said? Yes or no? No. Did Jesus say, Whosoever believeth in Him and joins the church should have everlasting life? Yes or no? No. Did Jesus say, Whosoever believeth in Him and says their daily prayers? Is that what Jesus said? No. The terms that Jesus laid out were very simple. Whosoever believeth in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Life. Perish. Heaven. Hell. How do we get to heaven? It's a matter of receiving Jesus. It's through Jesus. It's a person. It's not what you know. It's who you know. How does a person believe in Jesus? Listen carefully. You would only want to believe in Jesus if you felt you needed Jesus. Otherwise, if you don't think you need Jesus, you're never going to pray Lord Jesus, come into my heart. Jesus is a Savior. He saves people from their sins. Sin is what separates us from God and takes us to hell. Jesus is a Savior. He saves people and takes them to heaven when they die. If you're here today and you've never repented of your sin and received Jesus, you can do that today. Would you close your eyes and bow your head and we'll have a word of prayer together. Thank you for watching the message today. We invite you to join us again every Sunday and Wednesday for more inspiring messages from God's Word.